0: Well, I got a text from, from Rich yesterday. He said, uh, hey, our whole family's sick. Do you have anything, uh, it's like, backup up to preach? And I said, nope. <laughs> and I was like, ah, you know, I can figure it out, uh, though, so no worries uh, if, you know, last minute you need something. He's like, how about we just plan on you preaching? And I said, okay. So here we are. Um, and I was thinking about what I should do and, uh, you know, naturally, the first thing that came to my mind was Romans, uh, obviously. So I started thinking, okay, where in Romans could I uh, preach from? And I thought through, and I was like, okay, we don't want to start a 10-year sermon series this week, so uh, we need to pick something kind of standalone. Um, and I thought about uh, Romans 3 and 4. That's, those are my favorite chapters of the book of Romans and I've done a sermon on chapter 3, and I was like, how about chapter 4? You know, the beginning of chapter 4 talks about Abraham and David and, uh, you know, the, the best, best verses in the whole book, Romans 4, 4 through 5. Uh, you know, maybe we'll do that. And so I started thinking about it, and I was like, oh, you know, and David wrote some psalms about the very thing that Paul is talking about. We'll bring in those psalms. And, uh, and then I realized that two-thirds of the sermon was just going to be in psalms. So open your Bibles to Psalm 51, because that's where we're going to be this morning. Do you know what scripture records as the first command of John the Baptist? John the Baptist said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know the very first word the Lord Jesus spoke after beginning his public ministry? Repent. You know, the disciples went out and proclaimed that men should repent of their evil deeds. The Bible talks very regularly of repentance, and these commands are not frivolous, meaningless statements. I think sometimes we gloss over them without much thought, but they are essential for those that are a part of the kingdom of God. Repentance is a fundamental turning away from sin, and it was perhaps the most addressed element of Jesus's ministry. And yet, It has become quite unpopular in Christianity today. And I suppose that's because repentance requires that we recognize our own vileness. A really arrogant man cannot be genuinely repentant. Many, many declare, I believe in Jesus. That part's easy. That part's the easy part, right? How many people in our world are actually repentant of their sin? I don't mean to say it's easy. Obviously, you know, the Holy Spirit has to do that, but you know what I mean. Comparatively, belief is like, yeah, I just trust in Christ for eternal life. Good. Repentance means leaving behind my former life. How many people have genuinely turned away, rejected their former lives and passions? Now, I think it's a really unfortunate thing. A lot of times when we think of repentance, we think of it as exclusively an inaugural element of Christianity. And by that, I mean people only see it as an initial element of faith for the sake of justification. You repent once, good to go. It is woefully inadequate. Woefully inadequate. Church, continual repentance is meant to mark a Christian's life. We cannot have a one-and-done view of repentance. Like, you don't stop believing after you're justified. So why would you stop repenting after you're justified? Our response to sin is not a minor issue because sin is not a minor issue. And if you and I continue to commit sins, which we do, then we continue to have need to repent daily. 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 My aim this morning is, is to convince you that we must develop the regular habit of repentance and to encourage you to do so for the sake of your growth in holiness and unhindered communion with our Lord. And in order to do this, I, I wish to examine the repentance of King David recorded here in Psalm 51. So let's read our text and pray, and, uh, and then we'll jump in. I'm only doing verses 1 through 17, just so you know. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Lord, not just to understand this text. Yes, for that. But Lord, we need your aid because our hearts are stony and rocky still. Because we commit sins against you. Because we revile you and we lash out against you. Lord, we need your aid in order to recognize our sinfulness and to come to you in genuine repentance. Lord, I ask that your spirit would convict us this morning of our need to repent regularly. And Father, that you would encourage us in repentance, Lord, to know that our sins are forgiven in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So if you notice in your Bibles, the subheading to this chapter says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. In many ways, King David was the standard of righteousness for kings. If you read through the rest of Kings and Chronicles, you see that a lot of times kings are compared to David. He was a mighty king, a faithful saint, a prophet, and a warrior. A lot of times we think of David; we think of him defeating Goliath. As so great a warrior was he that people cried out uh, that he killed tens, th- tens of thousands of enemies. If you remember his, perhaps his sufferings under King Saul who sought to kill him, remember he fled to live with his enemies, the Philistines, for a time. You might recall the great honor and reverence that he had for King Saul as the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul sought his life, David would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. Surely the Lord was close to David and his kindness was evident in his life. God even makes, made, made a covenant with David, promising that his offspring would sit on the throne of Israel for all eternity. We understand this to be Jesus. Yet, there was that one failure. The one sin that was so grievous in his life that it resulted eventually in the fracturing of Israel. David's major moral collapse was with his dealings with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Now, if you want to read this story, you can check it out in 2 Samuel 11. I'm just going to kind of recount Uh, some of it right now. David was on his roof when he saw a beautiful woman bathing. He called for her, slept with her, and she became pregnant. David feared that his sin would be exposed, and he was more concerned, honestly, about covering it up than dealing with what he did before God. To hide this pregnancy and his sin, David recalled Uriah from the battle lines and encouraged him to go be with his wife. However, Uriah was far too honorable a man for that, so he slept on the couch and never visited his wife because all his comrades were at war. It would be dishonoring for him to get this this great benefit uh, when when they were still out fighting the battles. So Uriah returned without ever having uh, slept with his wife, and so David goes to plan B. Instructs his commander Joab to kill him. Now, not directly, because that would be too overt. That would seem like it was, you know, too much of an issue. So he was a little more subtle. He's like, "Okay, go attack a city and then pull everyone back so that uh, Uriah dies." And that's what happened. The archers hit Uriah, and uh, he dies. Plan succeeded. David escaped scot-free. No problems. He was good to go. All he had to do was. Take Bathsheba as his wife, no one would ever know. But I want us, before we move on, to consider how our own hearts mirror the actions of David so frequently. I am sure that many here, including myself, have been more concerned with others discovering our sin than with our sin itself. How foolish the heart of man is. And how quick we are to forget that the eyes of the Almighty see all. David thought he was free from consequence. He thought no man knew his deed. But God knew. And God sent his prophet, Nathan, to speak to David and give the consequences for his sin. Oh yes, sin had consequences. No one but God knew, and there were still consequences given by God. We must not foolishly think that our sins, even as believers, will go unanswered. We do not receive judgment for our sin. That's important. The judgment's on Christ. But we do reap the consequences of sin. It is unclear exactly when David wrote Psalm 51, but it was right around this time when Nathan confronted him. Today, permit me to examine five elements of David's repentance clear in the text here, with the goal of examining how each of these elements is critical to our own repentance. Here are the five things uh, in this text. One, we're going to look at the grounds or the foundation of our repentance. Two, we're going to look at the necessity for repentance. Three, we're going to look at our hope in repentance. Four, our response after repentance, and five, the disposition of repentance. Let's begin by considering the grounds of repentance. Verses one through two, let's reread. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. First thing that we notice here is that David addresses God. He does not speak to the reader here. Sometimes in the Psalms, he speaks to the reader. But in this case, he addresses the Lord. Your sin offends God. And so your repentance must be directed towards God. You cannot repent of your sin without appealing to the Lord. So David here doesn't spend any time beating around the bush. He doesn't even list out the specifics of his sin. He simply cries out, have mercy on me, O God. When I read this, I imagined that David lay there as a broken, shaken man during the night, tormented by the awareness of his sin. I I don't mean that he was tormented by the consequence of a sin. Once he was confronted, I I think he, he was tormented by the sin itself. The man of God loves his God and hates everything that opposes his God. He hates his own actions. He does not understand them. He's a conflicted man, burdened by this enigma. Unable to sleep, imagine David rolling out of bed, face wet with tears, and falling to his knees, trembling, and exclaiming with anguish, Oh God, have mercy. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. It's a plea. It's a cry. This is what a man says when he knows he has absolutely nothing to bring to the table. I suppose that there are many here who have experienced a degree of this when you are confronted with the weight of your sin. It's like the prodigal son. He's with the pigs. Text says that he came to himself. You, you realize your sin, and it's like it sucks your life out of you. It's like you can't breathe, like your heart is wrung out, realizing the weight and the offense of what you've done. And you can hardly look up. You can hardly look up because you're afraid that the gaze of God might meet you if you lift your eyes upward. You can barely stand because your knees knock together, and tremble. That is the disposition of repentance. We'll talk more about that later, but that is how you approach a holy God. David wrote in Psalm 32, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But... Look here in our text. Look here closely, Christian. Look at David's appeal. Look to where he finds his strength. David here in verses 1 and 2 does not appeal, appeal to his kingly office. He speaks nothing of his prior faithfulness. He points to nothing in himself. You know what he says? Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. When sin becomes acutely present to us, when our souls are weighed down by iniquity, who have we to look to but the Lord? Who will we go to but God? What can we appeal to but his nature? Now, God is the source of the terrible judgment. He is the standard of all righteousness. We fear his holiness. The unceasing gaze of the judge knows your every thought. But listen, if there is any mercy to be found for you, if there is any forgiveness for you, if there is any relief from your sin, you will not find it anywhere but before the throne of God the Almighty. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. To what else shall we appeal? A steadfast love is an awesome word. If you ever are interested in doing a word study sometime, I, I recommend doing a word study in that word. But it doesn't mean an expression of fickle emotions. It is a firm, covenanted disposition of love. David appeals to the nature of God. Not God's random emotions, not that God has random emotions, but but his nature. Have mercy on me because of who you are. For you are the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. It's from Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The only proper grounds, foundation of our repentance that we have to stand on is the nature of God, not yourself. And the man well aware of the significance of his sin knows that only an act of God could cleanse him. David looks not to himself. He runs past all his deeds and his might. The mighty king of Israel says, God, what else can I turn to? Where else is there forgiveness? You're all I've got. You're all I've got. Have mercy. Have mercy. Oh Lord, please forgive me. Christian, when you find yourself entrapped by sin, cry out to the Lord. Let your act of repentance be based on his grace. In your prayers, appeal to his character and let the weight of your sin become eclipsed by an awareness of the of God towards his people and the freedom that we have in Christ. How precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Approach the throne on your face and plead guilty. Lord, you are a merciful God. I have nothing. And the Lord hears his children He hears his children. That's a whole other sermon for another time. That's a remarkable thing. He hears his children and he acts in accordance with his nature. And then we get to experience the sweet sorrow that comes with true repentance. What a delight and an odd joy it is to have our sins forgiven before the Lord, to find that he has pardoned us Anyways, let's continue. Having established repentance's foundation, let's now move on to consider its necessity in verses three through six. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. First, verse 3, David does not work to suppress his awareness of his sin. After he acknowledges it, he's clearly mindful of it. He says right here, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. His sin does not take up a, a, a foreign corner in the back of his mind to be forgotten about. And I suppose that uh, there are many of us that have sins in our lives that we have done that are so grievous that we look back and we say, my sin is always before me. There are some sins that we commit that scar you. You know, you may move past them. They're forgiven, but you remember them. And there's still consequences. Sin always, always has consequences. There can be no repentance without acknowledging your sin. And that means regular confession to God confession to god you cannot force ignorance of your sin if you seek to be repentant if you want to repent you can't be like oh this, I, I, this sin i repent of that that's we'll kind of ignore that no that's not repentance that is not genuine repentance if you've sinned you must acknowledge your sin all of your sin you must deal with it you cannot ignore it confession is a kind of act of faith it, it Takes us and places us in the hands of God squarely and intentionally. We admit that we deserve the fullness of wrath for our particular sins, and we say, I'm yours, Lord. I'm in your hands. Look at verse four. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is a somewhat baffling verse, isn't it? Against God only have I sinned? How is that true? Did David not sin against Bathsheba by inciting her to commit adultery? Did he not sin against Uriah by having him killed? Did he not sin against Joab by using him as an instrument for evil? Yet here he says, in no uncertain terms against you, you only, you only have I sinned. He rightly identifies the one chiefly wounded by this transgression. Consider this the Lord gave to David every single thing he has. Everything. The breath in his lungs was supplied by the Lord. The beating of his heart upheld by the Almighty. His victories and triumphs granted to him as a gift. His very life Sustained by God, his, his kingship, his kingdom, the promises of God towards him. It's actually really hard to read through the text and find a time when God was not kind towards David. Yet David presumed on that kindness to lash out with lust and hate. He took his breath, his faculties, his kingship, his military success, and he twisted these gifts into sin. You have to imagine how the Lord's heart burned against that sin. The arrows of an enemy wound, but the arrows of a friend pierce deep. Did the Lord not count David as his friend? Repentance was a necessity for the king because his sins offended God. Offended God. The most abominable sins in our world, if you just think of the worst sins you can imagine a person committing, usually are considered the worst sins because it's harm done to innocent blood. The greater the person's innocence, the greater the violation committed against them. And we sin not against someone who perfectly adheres to righteousness. I'm thinking about God. We sin against the one who is righteousness. The necessity of our repentance stems from the utter holiness of God And without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. Without repentance as a believer, we hinder our communion with God. We hinder our communion with God. The aim and goal of the Christian life is nearness to God. That's what eternal life is to know God. That's what it means. To rest in his arms to be to the praise of his glory. Romans 8 tells us that we were saved so that we might be conformed to the image of the Son, that Christ might be preeminent amongst many brothers. In other words, we're saved to live righteous lives, that Christ, who's the source of our righteousness, would be exalted. Continued sin does violence to this task. It draws our eyes downward. It hardens our hearts. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It offends our God who loves us. We wrongly perceive that our sin as Christians has no consequence because we've been forgiven. You know, we think, oh, that's it. But that, guys, that is just not true. I'm going to keep saying it. it is not true. What Christian can say, I mean, all of us, if we really examine ourselves, who can say that our sin has not hurt our love for God? Who among us can say that uh, sin has not damaged the way in which we draw near to him? How do our hearts continue to delight in the Lord the same way after sin? Consider a child. A child sins against his father. It does not mean he's not a child, but it does mean there is a relational cost. Do not think that because we have been forgiven that sin has no consequences. Furthermore, as Christians, when we sin, Do we not sin against a greater measure of grace given to us? Think about this God has been gracious to you, He's been kind to you, He's forgiven you in Christ. You're sealed with His Holy Spirit, He's destined you for glory. The grace is given to Christians, it's immense. So what pain do we do to our Savior when we sin? Instead of fashioning our own ammo to fire at God, we take the munitions and supplies he's given us and fire it right back at him. In a sense, in in this sense, perhaps it is true that the sins of the Christian are more relationally hurtful to God than the sins of the pagan. And if the offense is so great, should not our repentance be full of fervor and genuineness. May the Spirit cause your conscience conscience, to feel the seriousness of sin, that sweet repentance would always be on your lips. When we lash out at a spouse or children in anger, our arrows launch against the Lord. When we are filled with pride, we defy his rule. When we lie, we invade his palace and seek to take his throne. When we lust, our faculties launch an assault on our dearest of friends, on our father. What fools we are to sin. If we had a right sense of the Lord's kindness towards us, then we would tremble at the thought of such an assault. And as we better grasp God's nearness and fatherliness and kindness and love for us, then our sin will seem more and more and more obtuse to us. As we grow near to God, sin will seem so much more distant and awful and vile. So repentance is necessary, one, because we've sinned against a holy God who deserves obedience, and two, because our sins hurt our communion with God. What man, after offending a dear friend, does not go to him asking for forgiveness? How much more ought we seek forgiveness from our God? As he says in verse 5 here, we're all sinful from, from our womb, from our mother's womb, sorry. We were brought forth in iniquity. That means from birth we're sinful and we do not rid this body of sin until death or until the Lord returns. And so our lives should always be filled with regular repentance from birth till death. This is the life of a true Christian. Let's continue on and consider the hope that we have in repentance. Verse 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David begins here by repeating his plea, purge me, wash me, But notice the second part of this, something he's not introduced yet. He offers the hope and the certain end of genuine repentance. I shall be clean. I shall be whiter than snow. When David sinned. God gave him consequences. And he speaks here. In verse 8, he says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He speaks of those consequences. And he speaks about God turning the groaning of his consequences into rejoicing. He asks to hear joy and gladness, gifts of God indicative of forgiveness. His requests pour out before the Lord. Verse 9, may God hide his face from seeing and even beholding David's sin. May he totally wipe out the record of those sins. Verses 11 through 12, don't take me from your presence. Do not take the anointing of the Spirit to serve you as king and prophet away. Restore me, uphold me. But David is not content to simply have the consequences of sin removed. Notice this. He asks the impossible of God in verse 10. Create a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. And herein shows the genuineness of David's repentance. He does not care only about the consequences and the judgments of sin. David wants to rid himself of the problem his shattered heart, his defective spirit. You see, carnal repentance only cares about the consequences. But the man of God abhors the very thought of dishonoring his Lord. It causes his heart to recoil and his lips to quiver. Oh, that I might not sin again against you. Oh, Lord, fix me, please. Fix my heart and my spirit, Lord, that I not sin against you. And let us realize that these words are inspired of the Holy Spirit. They were not just statements of baseless hope, but of sure expectation. The man who repents of his sin shall be clean. The one who cries out for mercy shall receive it. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 5, also written by David, says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then we consider what Paul does write in Romans chapter four. He says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he cites Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul uses David, an adulterous murderer, as the standard example of a man, an ungodly man justified by faith. And let me tell you, if the Lord can forgive David, then the Lord will forgive you. Oh, church, see in here the gospel. Behold your salvation. You sinners, us sinners, filled with hatred, brimming with anger, greedy, lustful hearts, faithless lips, selfish, arrogant spirits, anxious hearts, Cry out, church. Beat your breast and weep with remorse and hatred and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, a sinner. And as certain as I stand before you now, you can know that the Lord's response to you will be, you are forgiven. Let me speak for a moment to those of you who are not Christians, who may be here this morning. Morning. Do you not realize that the fires of hell lick at your back this very moment? Your heart beats because the Lord has granted you life. Your lungs suck air because He put that air in your lungs. And at any moment, He can revoke that gift. Make no mistake, you will die. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow. We know not when, but we shall all die. And the Lord is blameless in his judgments, as he says in verse 4. He will not spare your sins if you die unrepentant. In this chapter here, David cries out just knowing the disposition of the Lord and his richness of mercy towards his people, Israel. But listen to this we can cry out in accordance with the mystery once hidden, now revealed Christ crucified. The eternal Son of God, crushed on the cross by divine wrath. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Cast yourself on the mercies of Christ. He will save you. He will save you. All you have to do is look to Christ. Look away from your sin. Look to Christ as Israel. looked at the bronze serpent raised up in the wilderness. Look to Christ and be saved. Turn your eyes away from the dullness of this world and from the sin which so easily entangles. Cry out to the Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me, Lord, I have sinned against you. Look not at my sin. Give me a new heart. And the Lord's promise to you, you shall be clean and you shall be whiter than snow. The hope here is certain. No force in heaven, no force on earth can possibly deny what is promised to the man who repents. Turn this day. If you are here and are not a Christian, Throw yourself before his throne. Weep at your sins and feel sorrow, deep sorrow for your treason. Let your heart be grieved. Come to the Lord meekly and humbly. Ask of him and he will grant you cleansing and forgiveness through the mighty work of Jesus on the cross. Let's consider now the next few verses and the right response we ought to have to God's forgiveness. Verses 13 through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your right, of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. As a creature, as one who is created, it is your solemn duty to praise your maker, It is the end for which you were created. Consider Isaiah 43, 7. The Lord says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. For the glory of the God of heaven you were created. You are the jewels in his crown. You are the gold of his palace. You are the precious things in his house. You were made for his sake. Romans 1.21, though, says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So we, trophies of God's glory, rebelled against our maker, and yet he offers this hope if we repent, we shall be clean, whiter than snow. Thus objects of God's mercy are not only trophies of his omnipotence, we're not only trophies of his mightiness, We are trophies trophies of his graciousness. We are trophies of his mercy. Isaiah 48 verses nine through 11 says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Why does God forgive us? Why does he offer this? For his own sake. For his own glory. The mountains cry out at God's power. The wind speaks of his presence. The heavens declare the glory of God. But the redeemed of the Lord can speak of what these can never know. We can speak of the mercies of God. David speaks in this psalm of the only fitting response to such an act of God. Praise. May the forgiven of God be a vocal bunch. (laughs) Teach sinners. The Lord turns repenters into preachers, into teachers, into evangelists. This is what witnessing means to bear witness to the grace of God. May we recount the kindness of God to sinners, to those far from Him. May we express to them Because the the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Expressing our repentance and God's response is the essence of evangelism. Teach transgressors of sin's vileness, teach them of the Lord's mercy, of His forgiveness tell about how the kindness of the Lord rescued you from the blameless judgments of God. David continues here, If God will deliver David, then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And then another plea, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. First, we see that God must open our lips if we are to pour out praise. But for those whom the Lord has forgiven, for those who have a new heart, for those whose lips have been opened, May we sing aloud His righteousness. This is one reason we gather together on the Lord's Day and sing. We are recounting the forgiveness and the kindness of our God in response to all that He's done. We respond to His forgiveness with praise in thanksgiving. In the midst of the congregation, I sing your praise. Our hearts burst with with sure expressions of thanksgiving and assurance. Guys, when we gather as a church to sing, we are meant to sing with our voices. (laughs) Lift up your voices when we sing loudly. Guys, you've been forgiven of all your sins. You've been cleansed. You're made whiter than snow. And the best you can do is mouth the words. Come on. I see you sometimes, okay? You know. Our ability to sing is really not the issue here. You can be the worst singer in the world. It does not matter. That's not why you sing. Church, may our singing not be stifled or muffled. May we not mutter our way through these songs. May we declare with joy, the mercies of the Lord. Let the angels in heaven witness our joy. Let the heavenly host see us all. Praise the Lord of our salvation. Now we turn our attention to the last observation from this text, the disposition of repentance, verses 16 through 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David identifies a common error of humanity, thinking that our rituals, even rituals ordained by God, are the means by which he accepts our repentance. To the Mormon who thinks that their temple works is what will certainly secure a place for them in the celestial kingdom, to the Catholic who perceives that his participation in the sacraments grants eternal life, David says this, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. For the, you got to understand, for the Jew of the day, it's not that sacrifices were bad. God had uh, commanded that they sacrifice. Sacrifices were right and good for them, but here was the problem. Such rituals do not make repentance effective. Such rituals do not make repentance effective. Taking communion does not make repentance effective. Being baptized does not make repentance effective because God sees the soul of man. God peers into our hearts. An unrepentant man who offers sacrifice finds no forgiveness, no altered standing before God in those sacrifices. The repentant man is the one who breaks, who breaks over his sin. And here we find two critical elements of repentance, hatred for sin and brokenness. Far too rare is it to find a man who genuinely hates sin. Not just, not just what a sin does, but what a sin is because it is at odds with God's nature. If you allowed people to do whatever they wanted with no consequences, if you said there are legitimately no negatives, no hell, no no nothing, do what you want, how many people would strive for holiness because it's what their God desires? I have frequently heard testimonies of people who say, well, I knew there was more to life, and so I went to church and became a Christian. And I kind of probe and say, oh, tell me a little bit of your life beforehand. It's a shocking thing to me because though they claim the name of Christ, many people speak nothing of an awareness, of an awareness of their sin, let alone a hatred for it. Some say, well, hell was pretty freaky, so I didn't want that. So uh, Other people say sin was ruining my family, and I just didn't want that anymore but these do not communicate a hatred for sin itself. Thomas Watson said, Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Heaven has never longed for till sin be loathed. By hatred here, I do not mean you get angry. Okay, anger fades. I mean hatred, a disposition of rejection, a despising everything that sin is. Your anger will wane one day. A hatred is a conviction. True hatred has no respect for certain kinds of sin. Okay, you cannot hate your lust and then feel complete indifference towards your slothfulness. If you not hate the sin, then your heart hates God. That are, those are the options. You cannot love God and sin. You cannot love God and sin. To come crawling before the Lord. Imagine this, come crawling before the Lord who's on his throne and to ask for grace. That's presumptuous enough. Even though God has said we ought to do that, that's that's a pretty intense thing. Yet to come to the throne for forgiveness while harboring a love for sin? To come to the throne without hating the very thing that brought us there? What kind of repentance is that? The Lord would look at that poor man before him and say, depart from me you evildoer, you Pharisee. You contort your face before others and give the appearance of sorrow, but there is none in your heart. Your sacrifices and your offerings mean nothing, for your heart breaks not over your transgression. You love your sin and you cannot serve two masters. Depart from me, I never knew you. Brothers and sisters, only the man with a broken heart and a crushed spirit can approach the throne of grace for aid. The genuine Christian is the one who comes face to face with the weight of their iniquity and falls in anguish over it. Oh, I have harmed the Lord, my friend, how my sins have piled up. They are a stench to him. What a poor creature am I, rightfully bound for hellish eternity. No man even knows the depth of my iniquity, none but the Lord alone. I cannot hide my face from him. I cannot flee. I am a guilty man there, but for the grace of God go I into the flames of hell. Lord, forgive me. I have no one else to appeal to. Have you such a broken heart over your sin? Examine yourselves. Do you come to the Lord with loud sacrifices and offerings? Or do you come beating your breast? Have mercy on me, a sinner. The disposition of repentance is the key to repentance. Without such an attitude, your pleas for mercy are disingenuous, and God will not hear you. And so, we have covered The five areas of repentance, I believe, covered by David in this psalm. Just to recap, first, its grounds, its foundation, which is the nature of God, his steadfast love, his mercy. Second, the necessity of repentance. We are aware of our sin and God's holiness. The Lord is blameless in his judgments. We need his mercy to continue to rightly commune with him. Third, it's sure hope. If we turn to him, we shall certainly be clean. We shall certainly be whiter than snow. He will forgive us. It's necessary result. Praise flows downstream from forgiveness. If we repent and are forgiven, then we must praise our Savior and its disposition. Broken and humble hearts that come to God hating their previous state. Church, repentance is not optional. It is an element of the gospel. I was, I was just this week reading in Revelation, um, and you know, God heaps up these horrible judgments on the people. And uh, John recounts in Revelation chapter nine, "The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands." nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. There are two types of people in the world, the repentant and the non-repentant. Christians, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't mean once, I mean daily. Let your prayers rise up before God as David's did. And when you come day after day after day before God in His Word and in prayer, peer into your hearts. Take a moment, a long moment perhaps, examine yourselves, acknowledge your sins, and bring them before the Lord. Let sorrow rise up in your heart over these things. Ask for forgiveness and then go assured. Your Lord, your friend, your savior, he's cleansed you through the blood of Jesus. You've been washed, cleansed, forgiven. Amen. The mercies of God are boundless. Let's pray. Father, we confess our sins, Lord. We confess the sin of not repenting. Lord, We confess that our hearts are often not broken over sin. That we care not for how you are grieved over our deeds. Lord, we confess that we need your aid. We fall before you, Lord. Forgive us. Forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us, Lord. Not not for us, chiefly. For your namesake for your glory. Do so in accordance with your steadfast love. And Father, cause us to delight and experience the joy of forgiveness. Father, encourage our hearts. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of what Christ suffered for. Let us realize that Christ suffered on account of our sins. It was our sins that held him there until it was accomplished. Forgive us, Lord. Have mercy on us. We're sinners. We need you. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.